Hello everyone, it's September 17th, 2019, so there was a fire on a launch pad with a fully fueled H2B rocket right on top of it. That's never good. Also, NASA does some testing of a Bigelow inflatable module for a possible role in the Lunar Gateway, which is always good. Let's talk about them both, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 228 of the World Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And there's no Dennis. Yeah, he's sick this week. Called out at the last minute. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I just we got started late because of it. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was more because I'm just I'm distracted this morning. It took me a while to get yeah. started. Yeah, hopefully he's not too sick. I don't know what he has. Yeah, um, yeah. This was the first I had heard of it too. So mm-hmm. hopefully he's okay. A couple of days ago, or about four days ago now, I had um, a doctor's appointment. And while there, I was convinced to get a flu shot, which I don't do. Yeah, I should do it every year, but I don't. And now I can personally say I can attest that there are side effects or at least for (laughs) some people. And I'm one of them. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Because I got achy and I just felt like I had a fever for 24 hours afterward. Oh, that's bad. If if you actually got feverish, that's a really strong reaction. That's unusual. Well, I don't know if I had a fever, to be honest, but Uh I had the symptoms of having one, which to me means that you feel like you ache and like your skin feels kind of raw, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. that weird yeah. flu skin feeling. Oh yeah, no. So yeah, I had that for 24 hours. Then after that, that that's still, that's away, a, so. that's a pretty severe reaction. That's unusual. Hmm. I'd be interested to, to see you get it next year and see if you have the same reaction or if it was just the strain that hit you hard. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. I normally don't ever get a flu vaccine because I just feel like I don't need to. But of course, that's, you know, like you're just rolling the dice there. Yeah. And the the, the key isn't you not getting sick. Uh, I care about you. You're a good person. I don't care if you get sick. I care if you get sick and then pass it on to somebody yeah. Who right. is really in a uh, in a bad position? So right, that's exactly the point, actually, and that's kind of why I got it because my father is much older, and obviously yeah. he can't afford to get the flu, and so yeah. that's the main reason yeah. why. Since you live with your dad, that's really mm-hmm. important. I mean, I'm you know taking care of an old man who <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, the last he thing can't he hear you can't get the flu. No. <laughs> Yeah, so it's definitely a good thing to do. So get well soon, Dennis. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. And we have a bunch of uh, correct answers. And uh, yeah. maybe you also have a correction to make as well, huh? Well, yeah, okay. All right. So first, let me apologize. I got the clue wrong for last week, which is why nobody guessed. You know, I don't know why you guys need, you know, accurate years to be able to come up with guesses. But, you know, I, I guess that's your failing, not mine. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You you say you got the clue <laughs> wrong. You don't mean that you got the date wrong? I got the date. Yeah, I got the date wrong for the clue, though. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. like I... I said the I said it wrong for the actual item last week. It was the mm-hmm. clue the week before. So I'm sorry, you guys. I'm I'm bad at numbers and I got it so wrong. I don't know how I got it so wrong. Anyway, thank you to uh Neil First on Twitter and Jason Friesen over email for correcting me. Um and thank you to everybody else who didn't correct me because I really enjoyed hearing it once and then never having to hear it again. <laughs> When I when I make a, a mistake that big, um, all right. So the winners for this week are Chubby Turkosi, Valentin Frank, Jason Friesen, uh, Christian Low, I believe is how you pronounce that. Uh, first time guesser, welcome, Christian. Uh, Cy Kyle and Scott McKenzie, who might also be a new guesser. So the clue for this week was this time the tortoise ran circles around the hair. And this week in spaceflight history is the twenty first of September, nineteen sixty eight. 
it was the successful return and landing of Zond 5. So just a little context here. Zond had had two unsuccessful launches earlier in 1968. Um, one had a second stage failure and one actually exploded on the pad, unfortunately killing a few people. But Zond 5 was a success with some interesting things happening along the way, let's say. So it, it was notable because it was the first return of a spacecraft from the moon. Now, Zond 5 didn't go into orbit. It was basically in a free trajectory uh, return. It wasn't a true free return, but it, it was close enough. It carried a bunch of microbiota as well as fruit flies and some plant samples. But the real stars and what uh, led to the clue this week were two tortoises. Um, now, unfortunately, these tortoises were absolutely abused uh, in the name of science. Uh, before the launch, they were starved and dehydrated, as were two control tortoises that remained on the ground. Um, and then they spent, you know, an uncomfortable time in space. And uh, once they landed, they were, you know, in relatively good condition. And then they were killed uh, for further study. Um, so you, it always sucks to hear about animals having to suffer uh, for humans. But, you know, in this case, it's one of the, if there's an acceptable use, I don't think that cosmetics are an acceptable case to abuse animals, but if there's an acceptable use, it's making sure that humans are going to be safe um, when they go on a long trip to the moon, right? It's not like, uh, you know, canary in a coal mine is one thing, but like going on a long trip to the moon, there's no turning back um, and you don't mm -hmm. want to kill people. Um, also on board was a mannequin with radiation sensors in it. So um, I was trying to remember the names of some of the other uh, mannequins that have flown. So what was Blue Origins called? It was uh, Luke Skywalker, like a pun something. Oh, Mannequin Skywalker. Mannequin Skywalker. There you go. So yeah, I don't believe that this mannequin was named. I really wish it was. And there were some other um, science payloads. There was a proton detector. Um, and there was also a digital camera, which is really cool. Um, so the digital camera um, not only stored its data like like hi-fi images on the spacecraft uh, for recovery later, but it also um, trans w was able to transmit them live uh, back home via radio, which is always very cool to be able to see, you know, first images as they happen. And it, in fact, um, these were some of the first images returned of the Earth from, you know, very, very high altitude. So uh, this mission wasn't uh, without issue. On, on the way out, this is, this is such a great failure. So they successfully completed translunar injection, and then they lost one of their star trackers. And I couldn't figure out what it was at first, but it turns out <laughs> that it had one of the, well, they, they had just recently installed um, sun visors so, so that the star trackers would be able to operate in more orientations. And they're brand new sun visors, and one of them got too hot in the sun, and it actually outgassed some material, and that outgassing fogged up the lens of the star tracker, which, I mean, it sucks, right? It really sucks, but I think that's like a very delightful failure <laughs> that the, yeah. the sun visor uh, screwed things up. And so uh, after that happened, Mission Control is actually worried about being able to maintain attitude successfully. And so they actually delayed a trajectory correction maneuver in order to troubleshoot the problem and, and try to figure out what was happening. Their solution was, hey, we, we need to get this done fast. 
um, because we need to be able to perform this TCM. Um, so they switched to Sun Earth Navigation, which is lower fidelity, but good enough. And then they said, you know what, after we do our moon flyby, we'll have some more time to troubleshoot the issue. So then they uh, did successfully uh, fly by the moon at around 950 kilometers. We're not 100% sure. 1950. Oh, yeah. Ni 1950, 1960. I found one source. David found another that disagree. And the fact is that we don't know much about this trajectory. Um, there's actually some really cool reconstruction attempts trying to figure out exactly what the trajectory looked like. Um, that you can find online. But this is another one of those instances where public astronomers who weren't, you know, associated with the USSR were actually tracking the vehicle and, you know, and, and watching what was going on. So in fact, last week, we talked about Bernard Lovell at the University of Manchester tracking Luna 2. In fact, his name came up once or twice during my research for Zond 5, because he also uh, tracks Zond 5. In fact, he uh, confirmed after splashdown that the vehicle re-entered too quickly and would have killed humans on board. Us not being able to pin down uh, the paraloon altitude to within 10 kilometers is not in any way surprising. So after they flew past the moon, uh, they had additional issues. Like it just got worse. So they weren't able to revive their star tracker. They lost their second star tracker. Oh boy, and it only gets worse from here. Um, so they have a stabilization gyroscope uh, on board and the pitch actuating motor uh, failed. So they lost pitch control from their gyroscope. They also have um, a high gain antenna that is called an earth seeking antenna. Um, so it can, it can move itself and it failed to orient properly. And this one was human error, unfortunately. Um, they set the config files incorrectly mm. um, because the documentation for the uh, for the antenna was incorrect. So they didn't set the parameters correctly. And so if all that isn't bad enough, um, they had to do a braking burn on the way back to hit the correct slice of the atmosphere right you need the right you need the right orientation either you, you need the right speed and so they lined up and tried to do their braking burn and their engine wouldn't start up i wasn't able to figure out exactly why but the, the braking burn failed so they did what is a very kerbal solution in fact i believe it's something that i've seen scott manley do in kerbal space program they oriented themselves so that um, one side of the spacecraft was facing earth and commanded the RCS thruster on that side to fire. Now, they put these RCS thrusters on the vehicle with the intention of using them for orientation changes and not for translation maneuvers. Um, in Kerbal Space Program, if you attach a bunch of RCS clusters to your spacecraft, um, the default is to have orientation and translation controls turned on. And you might not be able to translate very well. Um, you might add a, a moment of rotation, but it's, it's doable, right? It's a, it's a game. In this case, they can't. They can only change orientation. They can't translate. So what they did was, um, like I said, they uh, fired this thruster up while it was pointed at Earth, which caused the vehicle to rotate and the other side to face the Earth. So once they got around 180 degrees, they fired the opposite direction. And they bounced back and forth like this. So most of the energy was going into rotating the spacecraft, but a decent amount of the energy, since all of those burns were lined up in the same direction, a decent amount of that energy went into slowing the vehicle down or adding a delta V in one direction. 
if you are changing orientation, your delta V tends to even out and you tend to not translate or change your trajectory very much. But in this case, they intentionally did this. It took them 20 hours of bouncing back and forth over a 180 degree arc. Um, but they successfully slowed the vehicle down and hit their minimum insertion target. So the intention was to land in the USSR over land, um, but they ended up uh, overshooting and splashing down the Indian Ocean, um, which really dramatically slowed uh, recovery. Uh, but they, they did. They recovered the vehicle and they um, recovered the tortoises. Uh, still alive and and it was you know a successful return from the moon very cool this landing now was this at a steeper trajectory than like what they would mm -hmm. have wanted yes yeah because uh if it were humans in that spacecraft they might not have survived but apparently the tortoises did i guess just because they're smaller yeah i got i they're smaller they're they probably are hardier in a number of ways yeah i also find it interesting that they chose the tortoises because they were quote unquote like easy to secure so i guess it has something to do with their shells like you can just you know know clamp them you can in glue them something yeah <laughs> such a weird thing i can just imagine these these little turtles which aren't in seats per se but just you know have like you know their shells secured to something and they're just kind of yeah. like flailing about yeah i mean these days you know you'd probably use some adhesive or or straps but i wouldn't be surprised if they actually um put mounts in their shell you know like and mm -hmm. drilled drilled into their shell but i mean who knows like yeah we're that's not something that we're gonna find out anytime soon yeah Cool story. All right. So, uh, so yeah, that clue totally makes sense in hindsight. And you got the date right. Um, Thank you. What <laughs> so, so the clue, I just want to, I want to be clear. Tortoise and hare, the moon has rabbit connotations, right? I hope everybody got that and it wasn't just the tortoises. How does it have rabbit connotations? In the West, we see the man in the moon. In the East, oh, they tend right. to see the, the rabbit in the moon. And so literally running circle. Well, I guess it was run ran a circle around the hair but i i thought that was going to be a little uh a little obvious if i, <laughs> if I yeah said that. okay all right well what's the clue for next week all right next week in 2003 the clue is generic no longer of course no idea what that's about uh, 2003 generic no longer like i'm thinking of like something that's trademarked or you know like whatever but that tends to go the other way so yeah yeah it's it's the day that i gave up buying generics at the pharmacy yeah so as usual no clue but if you think you know give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everybody In the news, uh, the H-2B Launchpad fire. This happened on September 10th, so this was a couple days ago as we record, or about five days ago, actually. And there was uh, just a very scary thing happened, which was a, like you have a rocket. Um, in this case, it is the H-2B launch vehicle, and uh, it's on the pad, it's fueled up, and it's on the verge of lifting off, or fairly close to doing so, and then you see a fire down towards the engine. So, yeah, that's terrifying, right? Because I saw the footage, yeah. and... I thought it's, to myself, okay, next it's going to yeah. explode, but it didn't. So they they have a uh, a water deluge system, right? It's it's odd to me that the instinct isn't to just flood the pad with water, but I guess depending on what kind of fire it is, that that could potentially be a bad thing. And if you're not sure, maybe uh, I thought that they did spray the pad down, but it it took them a long time. Yeah, it still took about 15 minutes, and I mean that might just be because they didn't have the water available then. Like maybe that's oh. that's like pressurized. You know, just yes. minutes. No, exactly. Sam says it wasn't fully pressurized at the at the moment. Oh, he, he's go. pretty sure 
That makes a lot of sense. Okay, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, so I guess that explains why it took him 15 minutes to get around to putting it out. Okay, so this makes me wonder what exactly was on fire because I, I don't think of launch pads as having a whole lot of flammable <laughs> materials because obviously... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not well-designed ones anyway. <laughs> so what was on fire? I mean, and this is something that they have not said yet. Uh, there's not much information yet, but I mean, I can only guess that there was some kind of like, you know, a foreign object or maybe it was just an electrical fire. I guess that's the more likely cause because things like wires can burn, right? Yeah. I mean, who who knows? I mean, there are propellants flowing through the pad, but it, it seemed like it was below the vehicle, didn't it? It was definitely below the vehicle. And I can't find the source now, but I had read that it was actually like, it looked like at least it was coming from the flame trench. So if it was coming from the right. flame trench, then I don't I don't know what could possibly be yeah. that could catch on fire. Yeah, exactly. You don't you don't put things that burn down there. At least not things that you want to keep. I mean Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very strange thing to have happened. And um but yeah, so this was supposed to be the launch of the HTV eight, which is the eighth HTV cargo vehicle that was packed with about three thousand seven hundred kilograms of cargo. And among that cargo there were new batteries for the ISS and that was scheduled for installation on September 27th, so just a few weeks from now, although that could be delayed. So, you know, these are just more of the new batteries. I don't know how many more they have to go because we've talked about it, I don't know, it seems like two or three times before. So I guess they're just, you know, going down the truss rod and changing all the batteries. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, that's been something that we've been doing for a while. Um, I wanted to, to back up a second here because... Um, Sam in the chat um, gave us a link to a tweet. Um, it'll be in the show notes now, but it's a really nice view of the launch pad. And it, it has uh, an area circled where it looks like the fire broke out. And what they've circled looks like um, either a tail service mast or a clamp. I don't know the mm -hmm. anatomy of this pad very well. Um, but from what they've circled, it, it looks like it's one of the one of the masts and not the flame trench, which, I mean, makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where you put the flammable things is above the flame trench. Um, so yeah, this will be in the show notes. Um, I'll, uh, I'll include the, the photo in the show notes so you can... Um, Hopefully you're subscribed to our uh, newsletter where you will have already seen this photo before the, the show even came out. But otherwise, you can um, click into the links. And if your podcast player supports photos, it'll actually be there or you can uh, click click on the link. Uh, but this is a this is a really good photo. It looks to me like it's just a clamp because like there's four clamps. You know, it, it looks I would guess the two lower uh, like there are two that look like they stand taller and then the two mm -hmm. that stand lower, or maybe it's three that stand tall and the closest one is a little lower. Maybe that's what it is. I would, I would expect the lower ones to be clamps and the, and the higher ones to be propellant, you know, service, uh, propellant mm -hmm. and, and electrical service masts. It looks like they are too, because you can see how they have some sort of stuff behind them like there's some kind of rigging or something yeah they, and there's pipes going to right so so that one that circled looks like it has less running to it so maybe it's just a clamp i guess maybe you know that could have been some kind of a fuel leak oxidizer leak i don't know Yeah, we, we really don't know at this point yeah. so so yeah what was i saying oh yeah the installation of the batteries yeah so that's scheduled for later on in the month although that might be pushed back and some other cargo uh, there was a laser communications experiment developed by Sony. 
Don't know what that is, but that sounds cool. There was also a cellular biology research rack in Freshwater, which I guess they send up with just about every vehicle. So yeah, right. uh, Freshwater, you got to What do you that. need? Not sure. Put water. Yeah. I think otherwise this is not going to cause any delays to the operations of the station. So hopefully they can have this launched within the next couple of days, maybe even by the time this goes out, possibly. Yeah. Well. Moving on to another cool story. And this is kind of like new, but not new news. I don't know what you'd call it. But uh, NASA, like over the past couple of weeks, has been conducting some ground tests of the Bigelow 330 module. Both that one and they also are, I guess you could say, just giving tours of another module, which I think is more of a concept. And that's the B2100, I think is what mm -hmm. it's called, which I assume is in reference to the volume, right? Because the 330 is 330 cubic meters. So I'm assuming that the 2100 is 2100 cubic meters. Yeah. And it certainly looks to be that big because it's massive. And um, yeah. before we talk about exactly what's going on now, I, I just have to say, I have not seen footage of this, but it has been around since at least like February of this year. They have had that big B2100, which is also called the Olympus module. And I had not seen what the inside of that thing looks like, but it is huge. Now, I'm having a little bit of deja vu now, like I've said this before. So this is happening in real time. So maybe I have seen this before, but I don't recall seeing it because it's so massive i don't know if you've seen the interior of this thing but it looks like a cathedral like it's that big yeah it's the, like a, the the mock-up that they have yeah. yeah i mean there's not much in it it's there's just like a little ramp that you can walk around and circles up to the top of it it doesn't look that big from the outside i mean it still looks big but you know how things are always bigger on the inside just because <laughs> you know but like you just look at yeah. it and it looks like a, I don't even know how to describe it. Oh, they've it. got a nice beam cut in half as well. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. The thing looks, I don't know, like some yeah. kind of like an auditorium or something. Man, I hadn't seen this video and it, yeah. it it's it's pretty, this mock-up is pretty impressive, I got to say. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that it is just a mock-up. I mean, this is not even something that I don't know what plants they have on actually making this because I think it's, it seems to be more of like a concept. You know what I well, mean? Well, I mean, plans is, is a loaded word, I guess. Yeah. Because um, they really want to. Um, but right. Bigelow is not always the most realistic company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Yeah. Man, they because did I'm, a lot of work on this mock-up. Yeah. This is really impressive. <laughs> it looks like you're inside of a blimp, I guess, is, you know, yeah. like if you imagine. <laughs> I mean, just just the ramp fabrication is impressive. Yeah. And then all the, they just packed it with purple LEDs. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks pretty. And uh, I mean, I kind of wonder what they would have in there, like if this were an actual space station. You obviously wouldn't have all the open space. You would have like various decks. That's how they have the 330 laid out. So yeah, getting back to that, uh, the B330 module, they are doing a two-week test of that as part of the Next Step candidate evaluation. And I don't remember what Next Step stands for, uh, but the Next and then, you know, capital letters, S-T-E-P. Yeah, it's... Um, um... Next space, some I don't know. Um, I, I can never remember what it stands yeah, for. But there is a total of six contenders here. And so NASA is just taking a look at Bigelow. Um, this is the last one on their list. And so, yeah, there's there's been a whole lot of engineers, you know, that have been coming in and out. And they've been pretty much just giving pointers on exactly what kinds of changes they, you know, might like to see. And then hopefully if Bigelow is selected, then they can go forward with production of the actual 
module and that would be very cool like if you watch the youtube video or videos there's probably several what's interesting is first of all it looks just packed with stuff but there is there's tons of stuff that has uh the label does not exist which is just kind of funny to me like i don't know if there's any other way of putting it but i guess you know what they mean is this would not be here like in a zero g right. environment because right, you, know, right, you wouldn't right. need it but yeah no, it like, does you know, not exist as a is a funny way of putting that yeah it's just like you'll see a ramp and it says does not exist you'll see a staircase and it says does not exist you'll see a load bearing member says does not yeah. exist yeah uh -huh. they have some printout like uh posters of uh translation aids like handles instead of actual handles i couldn't make out exactly what those were supposed <laughs> to be but they're just like posters yeah. they're not actual yep. okay yeah it looks like they printed them out on cardboard and and yeah so that particular mock-up however is being called the mars transporter testing unit so i guess you know it's kind of been modified for that purpose um but they're just trying to get it perhaps you know selected for the gateway mission possibly going to mars but um i don't know i think for that maybe again i'm not sure what the b2100 is for like other than it looks really cool i don't know how you would get that into orbit i'm not sure what the what its compact diameter is and what the mass is but it's got to be super heavy just given how huge that thing is so um so the, the 2100 i don't believe that I mean, they say that they want to send everything to Mars, but mm -hmm. um, I, I think the real big idea is to use that as a basis of a commercial space station and like a space hotel. Yeah, to me, that's a perfect use. But even then, getting that to low Earth orbit, what do you well, it, it it's a it's an eight meter like it, it needs an eight meter fairing. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it could it could fly on SLS. Who knows if if. Uh, Super Heavy is going to have a, a cargo variant that has an eight meter fairing that actually can open up all the way, right? Because if mm -hmm, you if mm -hmm. you just have the the spaceship with the I don't know, it's like the data thumbnail like trunk lid that opens. I don't know if a if a twenty one hundred could get out of that, but or I guess it would need some kind of know. specially some kind of a special second stage, perhaps you know that's like a one yeah, which that's not that's not going to happen. I think we can agree that's unlikely to happen from SpaceX. I don't think SpaceX will be interested in doing so. Heck, you know, SLS at this point can get as many customers as they as they possibly can. So that's a possibility. Yeah. Maybe this is something for Blue Origin to take up. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but now we're just getting into speculating, speculating, speculating. Speculation continues. Sam says for the lower mass estimates, New Glenn maybe could do it, but they would need a bigger fairing because... Um, there, I don't, I don't remember how wide the fairing is, but it's not eight meters. No. Um, and yeah, Sam says, uh, as far as he knows, um, twenty one hundred was sized specifically for SLS, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know it was sized. I mean, it it just seems rather ambitious, but it would make sense for them uh -huh. to at least take that into consideration. So it's at least sized for a real life rocket or one that supposedly will be at some point. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Going back to the B-330, one thing that um, you could see during the tour is that they had these rather large TV screens, you know, like up against the inner surface, and those were mm -hmm. supposed to represent windows. So I didn't know that the B-330 was supposed to even oh, have okay. those or perhaps have them, although they had said that that is definitely a problem trying to get these hard windows built into something that expands. And so I don't think it's very likely, like if this thing ever flies, I don't think it's going to have windows, but that would be very cool. Uh, but 
but for the time being, they just have these big TV screens uh, that show a star field. Yeah, those those were really cool because they looked like they were compound curve screens, which is like very expensive. <laughs> like yeah, custom like, custom compound curves. I don't know. Maybe custom I thought they were Samsung. projectors at first. Yeah. Yeah, but how cool would that be? Like if you could have Windows on board your space station or your inflatable space station. Big Especially like if that. they were that big, because those look like you know thirty inch corner to corner. It's a window the size of a widescreen TV because that's exactly what <laughs> <Yeah>. it is. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so they also have two lavatories on board the B330, which is really cool. I think the top deck also has a, I guess what you would call like um, a medical facility. I don't want to call it a medical bay. That sounds too cool, but you know, like they kind of have it like laid out deck by deck. And the only thing that makes me a little bit disheartened is that once you're in zero G, you don't have decks. You just, you're just like floating through more cabin space. And I kind of like the idea of it having a down, but there is going to be no down obviously on these things. For Visual cues for humans are really important. Um, mm -hmm. We really like to have lights above us and flat surfaces below us. And so mm -hmm. maintaining that orientation is, is going to be important, at least until, you know, we have kids who grow up mm -hmm. uh, and are able to build odd orientations into their brains. Moving on to short and sweet, obviously just two, since there's just two of us. And also, I really couldn't find a third one. So <laughs> let's do that. All right. First up, Tianhe passes final review, although delays are still likely. So the core module prototype of China's space station called Tianhe to be completed by 2022 has passed final review. Manufacturing of the flight model should begin very soon. However, the launch vehicle to carry it to orbit, the Long March 5B, has been delayed due to the launch failure of a Long March in 2017 that uses the same engine. The cause of the failure was traced uh, back to a turbo pump, which is now under redesign. The delay has uh, now most likely pushed the station's completion back by two years, and there's still no update on when the Long March 5B might launch. Yeah, so they just don't have a launch vehicle at this point is what that all comes out to yeah. me. And, and they might not even have one in two years because they're having to redesign a whole new turbo pump. Okay, secondly, uh, NASA's LRO to take images of the Vikram lander. So NASA has announced it will be using the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter to take images of the Chandrayaan-2 landing site on Tuesday the 17th. ISRO has already used the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter to spot the Vikram lander, but has declined to make the images public, and it is not clear whether ISRO was able to determine the lander's condition, though the LRO imagery should be able to resolve these details. Yeah, so this is a high-resolution spacecraft that should be able to tell us stuff that maybe they can't, well, that they can't and also will not tell us, which I don't know why, but, you know, obviously that's their business. Like, ISRO is keeping it close, so. Uh, Sam in the chat said, uh, it's definitely dead, but not officially so, and I like that. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a correction, uh, and this is really a correction for Dennis, but he's not in this week, so... Yeah, so this was a correction uh, for Dennis um, that came in from Kevin Smith over email, and it's about GOES-13, and Kevin sent in uh, an article which, David, you read more thoroughly than I did, right? Yeah, I read it briefly. So basically, uh, the presumption that Dennis had made was that GOES-13 had been decommissioned and pushed up to a graveyard orbit. But in fact, uh, that's not the case. So there was somebody 
the information we, that has been referenced here is from a WordPress website. The author, I, I guess, apparently makes observations or takes radio telemetry observations of satellites in orbit, and he found one that was where there should not have mm -hmm. been one, and mm -hmm. he had determined that it was Ego 13. And yeah. then a, a little bit further down in the article, the speculation is that um, this had drifted to the west and is now being used by the U.S. military to essentially continue to make observations of the weather. The speculation per another article written by Jeff Faust, who tends to know what he's talking about, is that uh, this was actually the U.S. Air Force and NOAA, the NOAA, which had been using it for providing weather monitoring services for certain parts of the globe where there's a U.S. military presence and uh, they need better data on the weather. So why not just take that weather satellite and repurpose it? That seems certainly plausible. And according to the data, that probably is exactly what's happening because there is a signal coming. Um, however, the interesting thing is that the signal seems to be intermittent in strength, which uh, the guess is that the thing is actually rotating. So maybe Ghost 13 is, you know, having some station keeping issues, which I guess is not surprising, which is why, you know, it has been replaced. So it might be rotating because uh, the signal becomes very weak and then it becomes normal once again, as though it's pointing directly at the planet. I guess it's not perfect for taking data on the weather, but it's something. And I guess if it's still good enough to be used for some amount of weather monitoring, then why not use it? So there you have it. And that's very interesting because I didn't know that you could or that the Air Force was maybe doing that with these satellites, but it makes yep. sense in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cool. Good Good correction. Thank you, Kevin. Let's uh, move on to the very barren upcoming spaceflight events schedule. We got one thing. Yep, just one. It's a Long March 11 uh, flying Juhai 103. That's flying, or that's, that's launching on September 19th. At 0637 hours UTC out of Jiuquan. Oh, Jiuquan. I'm losing my pinion pronunciation instance. <laughs> All right. And that is your upcoming spaceflight event. So with that out of the way, let's deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 Nut Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes, and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.